Okay, a couple of things. Number one, thank you for your prayers for me this past week. I, I uh, would have loved to have been here last week. Uh, fever kept coming and going and coming and going, and, and uh, so I just watched. And it was a joy. Thank you, Steve, for filling in last week, um, challenging us to be in the Word. That was excellent uh, message for us to hear, too. Um, so, a lot of guys have been at work in the church this week, and I do want to say thank you to you folks, too, who have been downstairs day after day after day and, and helping get that all cleaned up. And that's wonderful, too. Um, the little booklet that you have in your hand here. Now, I will cough once in a while, okay? If my head falls off, just pop it back on there. Uh, but I don't anticipate it will be that severe. Um, but it is still annoying. Uh, this little booklet is our sermon series that we're going to enter into. Um, now, a couple of things you need to know. This is The goal is to speak about our identity in Christ. And I think it's a very useful, I think it's a very important uh, study that we ought to have together. So we're going to do that, and I'll explain more of that as we get into it here this morning. But uh, inside the front cover, you'll see the verses that we're going to be covering, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And then all the pages to follow are different sermons, by the way. Some of these might even be two sermons or three sermons. I don't know as we develop it. But uh, uh, some of you like to keep notes and at least write down a thought or two about what you learned. This is not one sermon just so you understand that. If you fill it all out today and use all the pages, that's okay. We got extra. But uh, they're meant to cover about 11 different sermons or topics that might be more than 11 sermons. And so, anyway, I know some of you are are pretty uh, prolific note-takers, and this is not going to satisfy you. Okay? I understand that. But for some of you, it might be a good reminder uh, of what we've covered, and you could see it as a big overview when we're done. So, don't lose it. Uh, matter of fact, I'm going to encourage you each week to take at least enough time to read through the Ephesians passage while you're at home sometime uh, and uh, review it during the week because this is where we're going to spend some time together. So, if you open that up today, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we're going to read that together as a congregation as we get started here, it's all right there. It's the New American Standard Version. Um, and uh, I took out the numbers in there, but uh, that is the entire text. By the way, this is one sentence in Paul's writing. This is one sentence in the Greek. And that's quite intense, isn't it? All right, so, but you're allowed to breathe, all right, as we read. So let's uh, read together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, 
he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Wow. Heavenly Father, this is a lot, a lot in one simple passage to reflect upon and to understand. And we thank you, Lord, that we have this uh, place where we can meet together on a Sunday morning and we can talk through these things together and learn together and trust you more and more and more. And I hope, Lord, and I pray that you will make these words very effective in our hearts and lives, that they will do their job because every single time you're at work in us, we are changed. And that's intentional because you want us to be like Jesus. So today, we start an adventure in a very wonderful passage. And I pray that you'll just warm our hearts with it, help us to grow, and help us to understand far, far more about how deeply you love us. And I thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Okay, today I'm going to introduce you to our study here. And I'm going to have you start with a, a passage. Let me let me think for a second. I had written it down, and I think if you're there, it's in Acts. No, it's in yeah, it's in Acts, and it's uh, chapter number twenty. Acts twenty. I didn't want to get that wrong, so I had to look that up better. Acts chapter twenty. I just want you to keep your fingers right there. Have the passage open because we're coming that way. In just a few minutes. There are things that uh, sit in my heart as I think about our growth as a congregation and uh, the kind of struggles that uh, we face as congregation, as individuals more times than not, uh, things that folks will face that nobody else may even understand or know that they're facing such challenges. And one of the blessings I have as your pastor is the ability to talk with you and to learn of things that are your struggles at times and, and to be in prayer for you and to encourage you along the way, too. Um, I'm going to be sharing a lot of my heart in this passage, in these sermons, uh, because they're very personal to me, and I know that they're going to touch the needs of many of us here, too. Um, We are quite aware in our world today of words like identity theft, uh, identity fraud. These kind of words show up mostly in in the technology arena, perhaps uh, computer territory. Identity theft and identity fraud are not the same thing. 
if you were to look up identity theft, which I did, and I'm going to read to you a little bit here about that. Uh, this is not any advertisement for a uh, virus protection program for your computer. All right, I'm not being endorsed by some uh, company out there that wants you to buy their product. I'm just reading to you some information I thought was very fascinating. In identity theft, it's an act of stealing personal, private, or financial information. Um, then identity fraud is the use of that information. Uh, there are differences between the two. Identity theft is a criminal act of stealing personal, private, or financial information with the intent of using it to assume another person's identity. Um, it can be to uh, make fraudulent purchases, open credit cards, bank accounts. You've had all the scares, haven't you? You've read and heard these kind of things. Uh, it can impact your health care claims, your taxes. Um, they are very eager to get a hold of your name, your social security number, your birth date, your address, your passwords, your credit card numbers, and your bank accounts. And it's amazing how they will bombard you to try to get those things from you. Um, thieves do that, and we know that. All they need is your wallet sometimes. Uh, all they need is access to your ID, maybe a credit card, a bank card, or something like that. Even the smartphones that people carry about today, <laughs> today are useful for criminals. Um, burglary, of course, computer hacking, and things of that nature. It's never a fun thing to find out that you've been uh, um, somehow caught up in something that people have stolen information. That's one thing. The identity fraud side of that is actually the use of such information, and they use it to make fake IDs, fake passports, fake credit card accounts, fake bank accounts, fake, fake loan applications. Uh, they withdraw or make transitions. Uh, they use your information, and they use it in a very terrible way. Twenty-six million was the number in 2016. 26 million identities are stolen, uh, according to the justice statistics. 2016, it's been quite a number of years, Beth, and they're better at it now uh, than what they used to be. So we know those words. We've seen those words, and we've, uh, we can't get around it. It's something we try to protect. There's also in our world today an identity crisis. And you're probably quite aware of this. It doesn't take long to watch the news. An identity crisis is defined as a period of uncertainty or confusion in a person's life. The crisis occurs when a person's sense of identity becomes insecure or unstable. Uh, it does change their life. It does change the way that they think. Uh, the symptoms they say to watch for are things like low self-esteem, Questioning your value or your worth, feeling lost or aimless, not feeling a sense of purpose or understanding your values, emotionally scattered, um, feeling uh, increased insecurity or increased feeling of anxiety or depression. And if you have watched the news lately, our world is bombarding our children. They are bombarding our children. In Romans chapter 12, it tells us, as believers, we are not to let the world shape us into its mold. 
The verse says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove that what is the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Two very important things about this phrase, do not be conformed to this world. These are things to listen carefully to. Number one, it is a command in Scripture. It is a command. It's not a great suggestion. It is a command for us as believers not to let that happen. And the second word, or the second thing that goes with this, is that little Greek word that talks about being conformed is the same word we get our word schismatic from, or schematic. A schematic, it has to do with assuming a certain form or a figure to, to more or less be shaped by what the world thinks you should be or what you are. Uh, <coughs> what this equates to in the reality of this world is that its designs are written out on how you are to act and your children and your grandchildren how they are supposed to think and how they're supposed to act the effort is relentless We are not told, by the way, in keeping this command, keep on not conforming. That's what it literally says. Keep on not conforming. That means we've got to keep at the at the task at the task because the rest of this passage speaks of a battlefield. The battlefield's in your mind. It's right there, as you know. This world is not going to stop with its attacks to conform you to its image, or the children that we have with us today. You know, it doesn't always take a tsunami to make a change. It just takes a constant drip that causes just as much erosion. We're not playing politics here this morning. I'm not running for any office. (laughs) But I just know that every single institution in every part and every piece of society, from our universities to our companies, to our democracy, even even all the parts have had a bit of that warfare in shaping your identity. Every single one has done. And what they are doing to our children now in this thing called gender-changing identity is pure evil in my book. That's the world you live in. That is the pressures that we live in. And we're able sometimes to stand off and say with a sense of relief that maybe we haven't been the victim of identity theft or identity fraud or we haven't even approached anything with that gender-changing gender identity efforts. But there is something I do realize that as I address the sermon series on our identity in Christ is that even we as believers in Jesus Christ are in a spiritual warfare And it's potent. Our enemy is potent. Far more potent than you and I are, because he is the enemy of our souls. Let me set a table before you for a few minutes here this morning. It's the historical context of Ephesians chapter 1. And why this passage is so vital for us to spend time in. We start with Paul's third missionary journey. Just a small chunk of the history of the book of Exodus. Paul and uh, 
uh, Silas had visited Jerusalem and Antioch, and they began their third missionary journey. That was around the A.D. 52 year. For the next two or three years, they went on this journey, this third missionary journey. They go to Ephesus. And they stay there for a little while. And while they're there, Paul writes a letter to the Galatians and to the Corinthians. They travel on through from the years 55 to 57 through Greece and nearby regions. There, Paul writes a letter to the Romans. Here he takes a ship back to Jerusalem when it's all over. And he stops along the coast of Asia Minor and has the opportunity to speak to the elders of the church of Ephesus again. And he calls them to join him there. I, I kind of picture them almost on the beach, but maybe it wasn't. But he says, come over here. I don't have time to come into, into the land to see you, but my ship is stopping for a short while. Would you just come over here? I want to talk to you desperately. Then Paul speaks to the Ephesian believers. Uh, the next couple of years, he heads back to Jerusalem. He is imprisoned. And he is set up in the prison of Caesarea. For a couple of years, he stays there until year 60 or so, when he appeals before Festus. Uh, he appeals to Caesar, and he gets on a ship, and he starts heading toward Rome. And when he gets to Rome in 60 to 62, somewhere in that ballpark, he is arrested uh, there at the uh, a house arrest, apparently, and he picks up his pen, and he starts to write. We call these his prison epistles. And they include Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and the book of Ephesus, the Ephesian book. This is five years after he met them on the beach. All right? It's been quite a distance of time has noticed uh, taking place there. And it's important that we got that feel because what he speaks to them in that missionary journey on the beach and what he shares here in Ephesians chapter 1 are fascinating. Let me show you what he does. Acts chapter 20, I told you, if you'll get there, that'd be great. Chapter 20, verse 17. I'll start right there. This is his time on the beach with them. I'm going to call it that. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which come upon me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jew and Greek of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and now, behold, I am bound by the Spirit. I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the grace of of the, uh, the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, Paul knew these dangers were very real. And in his strategy to help them hold firm in the attacks of evil and deceitful things that would destroy them, he doesn't isolate them from the world. He doesn't say, pack up and move to an island. He doesn't say, uh, better yet, go and attack back. Go chase them down. Go get those enemies. He doesn't say that either. He says this in verse 31. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Those are key words to understand. We're to admonish one another. We are to take the words of his grace and build each other up. That is the call of the church in an evil generation. To build each other up and understand what he has given to us. Those who have been sanctified. He says, I have coveted no one's silver, nor gold, or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. I love stopping right there. That's what we need. It's prayer. It would be nice, I know. (laughs) And I've heard people say this before, and you have too. Maybe you've even thought it. It would be very nice to, as a believer, on the same day that you were saved by the blood of Jesus, that you were either instantly transported to heaven, that would have been great, or wrapped in some spiritual bubble wrap. Of course, it'd be hard to breathe, but... Anything to keep you from the attacks of the evil one. That would be ideal. The fact is, the believer is under attack. Under attack. In Revelation 12, verse 10, we read, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, let me say that that verse has not been fulfilled yet. Satan has not been vanquished from the heavenly throne room yet. His footprints are still all over the place as he marches up and down before God's throne and he accuses. He accuses you and he accuses me. He is the accuser Of the brethren, it says. He loves to bring up before God. See, they disappointed you again, didn't they? He loves to say, see, they act more like my children than yours. 
He loves to say, see, they sinned again. They're not worthy of anything but death. Your word says so. Fact is, he accuses us before our God, according to this verse, day and night. That's relentless. It would be nice, I know, if we could blame him for all of this. But the reality is, we are sinners. That's the reality. Sin is an offense to God. Sin has consequences. God has made it very clear. The wages of sin is what? It's obvious. It's right there in text. I'm not one who believes that a man can live a sinless life on this earth. There are some who believe that. But scripture says to think that is to call God a liar. I won't do that. But I also know that Jesus came for this very purpose. That's why he came. He died for my sin. Isn't that a precious thing? He died for my sin. He paid the price in full. He took the full wrath of God upon himself. And truly, that was my punishment that he took upon himself. He did that for you. He did that for me. Does that mean I can live any way I want now because my sin has been paid for? No way. Paul even says it in the book of Romans. He likes the words, God forbid. I love that. How could we who have died to sin still live in it? Folks, I will not cheapen the blood of Jesus that was spilled on my behalf. Yet with all that said, why does Satan still accuse us? It somehow brings him great pride to bring it up before the throne of God, I think. And in the presence of all his holy angels, that somehow the blood of Jesus didn't work. That somehow God's great plan had been ruined. That the Holy Spirit really does a poor job of restraining his own from sin. You know, as Peter wrote in his epistle, chapter 5, he says, Well, you know, Satan is like a roaring lion. And he is seeking someone to devour. Folks, that doesn't mean he just wants to give you a bad day. Be of sober spirit, Peter wrote. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And did you also know this? Satan, who's identified as the devil in passages of scripture, is a master at slander. That's one of his specialties, by the way, because it comes from a Greek word called diabolus. Have you ever heard the word before? That's where we get the word devil, diabolus. Uh, It's a very graphic word. D-I-A, the first three letters. Dia is a preposition in Greek, means through, all the way through. All right, we use it for things like diameter and stuff like that. But... uh, the second word is balos, B-O-L-O-S, which comes from balo, the verb, to throw. To throw. And when you put those two together, so you get the picture of what he's up to. It says in Scripture that he throws fiery darts. What his intention is, if it's not blocked by the shield of faith, is to go all the way through you with one of those fiery darts. Again, that's not to tickle you or even give you a bad day. It's not a prick. It's an intense 
fiery dart or spear that's thrown to go right through you. He has been aiming at the believer for a long time. Ephesians will show you that in chapter number 6 especially. But what he is throwing matches his name. He is slanderous. And that's the word for slander. In case you ever wonder, well, how bad is slander? Slander is a fiery dart going through a person. It's intended to kill. Spurgeon called it tongue murder. This is what Satan does. He slanders us constantly before the Father's throne. And in case you want another scary word that's the same word, it's called gossip. We find that in Scripture, but it's also diabolus, the Greek word. So, are you surprised that he would attack in a desire to slander who you are and what you are? Because that's the nature of slander, is to say something about you that's not true. Let me add one more thing before I bring it all around to our study here on the topic and what we're going to deal with here. I want to say this, as you have already noticed in Ephesians 1 verse 3 as we read it together, it says, we are blessed. It says in verse number 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Isn't that beautiful? He has blessed us with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Your booklet represents about 11 of those everys. I don't even know what the entire list would look like. I don't even know if we have a book that cover it. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places you have been blessed with in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing, not only that you're blessed, but this. It is your place of spiritual position. It's who you are. It's really your identity in Christ. What you're about to learn that he has done for you. In verse 2 of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, sorry, verse 4. It says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he has made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I find it fascinating to follow this this chain of thought that Paul has in the book of Ephesians. He says, first we are blessed, in chapter 1, verse 3, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And now he says, in chapter 2, verse 6, that we're actually seated, raised up, made alive together with Christ in the heavenly places. That sounds like a really important place, doesn't it? The heavenly places. The third thing Paul does with that text, all the way down to chapter 3, by the way, verse 8, 9, and 10, it shows you that is this, this place, this heavenly places he keeps talking about, is identified with God's wisdom. It's God's wisdom that's to be revealed. And folks, this is big. I can't even try to put my words around the concept of revealing God's wisdom. It's huge. The unfathomable riches of Christ. You know, unfathomable means what? We We can't get to the bottom of it, can we? It's that deep. It's the mystery of the ages, he calls it in chapter 3. And it's, it's being proclaimed 
by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 8, is proclaimed to the highest of all places to speak of the glory of God. And this is what it says in Ephesians 3, 8, 9, and 10. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for all the ages that has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might may now be known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, it's starting to sound pretty big, isn't it? A huge concept that we're all wrapped up in because, well, we're seated in these heavenly places. We've been blessed in all these heavenly places. And God is just showing over and over how it unfolds to his wisdom and to his glory of what he's been doing for us. Is it any wonder at all that that is where the attacks take place? In chapter 6, verse 10. In chapter 6, verse 10, when he starts in the passage about the armor, listen to these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. We say, you know, it's kind of tough down here. But the battlefield is in the heavenly places. Folks, that's the place where you've been blessed. That's the place of your identity. That's the place where you've been raised up in Christ Jesus and where you're seated today in Christ Jesus. That is the place where God's great glory and His, His wonderful wisdom is made known. And Satan goes at it full force to attack right there. What does that mean to you and me? Well, this is what it looks like. When Paul wrote or spoke of that point, and then five years later he's writing this book to the Ephesians, he starts first with their identity in Christ. That is what's under attack. Their identity in Christ. Just as he warned the Ephesian believers five years before, he says, I know that after my departure, savage, savage wolves are coming among you, not sparing the flock. I want to tell you a true story. Most of them I tell are true, I think. Some of you have heard parts and pieces of this. When I became a pastor, I was at a rather young age. I was 24 years old and suddenly found myself a pastor of a church. I was not looking for pastoral ministry. I had gone to Moody Bible Institute, and yes, my original idea at the age of 18 was, yeah, I want to be a pastor, because they only work one day a week. (laughs) Honestly, that's what it was. I said, it sounded good to me. As long as they don't teach me that Greek and Hebrew stuff, I'll be great. And that was my goal. Uh, so I went to Moody Bible Institute. I finished Moody Bible Institute, graduated, and I felt enormously inadequate to serve as a pastor. I didn't feel like I had anything to my advantage to do that. So I, I simply took what we call a secular job, um, 
I helped out in the church that we attended by teaching Sunday school classes, helping with the youth ministry and things of that nature. Uh, I was just a good average church attender. And I filled in some parts here and there as I went along. I was teaching the adult Sunday school class uh, on the book of Judges, of all things. <laughs> and uh, we're working through it week by week and talking about these interesting men and the things that the Lord did through them. And a couple of elderly ladies came up after the Sunday school lesson, and they pointed those little elderly fingers at me. And they said, you know, we think you need to go back to school and finish that education because God wants you in ministry. You know, and I go, oh my. I took that to heart. I took that to heart. I moved my family to Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, that was when we were up in Indiana. I went to a school called Southeastern Bible College. It's not there anymore. I didn't mess it up, okay? But uh, it's not there anymore. But I found a chance to minister in a small independent church as a children's church teacher. And that's all I did. On Sunday mornings, I'd take care of four of the brattiest children I've ever known in my life. That was more than a ministry. That was a persecution. <laughs> but I worked with those kids. By the way, they were the pastor's kids. Like, ah. So anyway, I went on six months that way, just content with that, doing my studies and such like that. And I get word that the pastor resigned, that uh, the church had split, that everybody who was less than 60 years old left. And the congregation that was old were left was the oldest of the folks. And they looked at me and they said, you know, you're the only one here who's ever been to Bible college. Would you fill in? Wow. I wasn't ready for that. I didn't feel I was ready for that. I had no idea what I was doing. That church had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. So we were happy. Uh, the ignorance level was wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know how to preach. I didn't know the least place to start. I didn't know what to do. And that was a burden on my heart. And I do know that I kept asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And he led me to Ephesians chapter 1. And it didn't make any sense to me at the time. But he says, I, I want you to work through Ephesians 1. That's what I understood in my heart I needed to do. I didn't know the value of such a passage. I didn't know that that actual passage is sweet medicine to those who have been slandered, to those who have been accused, to those who have been trampled on, to those who have been left for dead because of sin. It is a passage that I think must be, and if you could say it this way, very dear to our Lord. Because he ministers to his own. He ministers to the bruised reed. And he works with the dimming, burning wick. And he does not break that reed. And scripture says the burning, the dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He's so tender and so kind to those who are hurting. He knows the consequence of sin. He knows how life-altering those things are. And how more times than not, when we can't give it up, 
when we can't get over it. We carry it about like luggage with us everywhere we go, like we're chained to it. He understands that burden. He understands why we do that. He understands you. But he also knows your real identity in him. He knows who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) The things that we will study in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14, where you will find your identity in Christ and what the Lord has called you to, number one, is never earned by you. This is not something you have achieved and neither have I. We have not worked our way up to a blessed ranking in God's eyes. He did it through Jesus. He did it through Jesus. The things that God has bestowed on you is given to you by the loving work of our Savior and His death. You will find the two words all the way through this passage. In Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him. Without Him, we wouldn't have anything here. But because of him, we have everything. And that's the beauty of this passage. It's not, it's not a focus upon us as much as it's a focus upon us in Christ and the difference it makes. And I believe a believer today needs to hear it. I believe we need to hear this. It says that you are blessed. And some people today, I wouldn't be surprised if you say, yeah, right. (laughs) That's for somebody else. That's not for me. The Lord knows me too well. He wouldn't bless me. It says here that you are blessed, that you are chosen. It says that you are holy. Let that sing for a second. He says that you are blameless. Oh, It says that you have been predestined, you have been adopted, you have been redeemed, you have been forgiven, you have been informed of what he's done, and you have been made an heir. And if that's not enough, he seals you there when you get to the last two verses. So you can't get out of that. That's what he's done. According to Satan, you are none of these. According to God, you are all of these and more. Who are you going to listen to? There's a slanderer out there who has been working on your heart for a long time, no doubt. Some people have struggled deeply with things that they have done, and they can't get over that struggle. They even go to label themselves by the sin they've committed. And they wear that title, almost as if the enemy has embroidered it on their chest. And they wear it for all the world to see. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're one who has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. I think you can understand what I'm about to say. God does not label you by your sin. He labels you as in Christ. In Christ. Those are the two words that are so significant in this passage. That's what God sees. He, I know he does not weaken sin. He does not. He solves it. 
And that's what we're going to see as we walk through this passage. I want to remind you of the words that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, probably the most corrupt congregation you ever read about in Scripture. They were very immature. They were deep in sins. So publicly, even the Gentiles were embarrassed when they would say, oh, that Corinthian church, oh, I mean, that, you didn't want to see their bus drive by. It was just new. It was, it was just bad news, the Corinthians. I don't think there was ever a, a more sinful congregation described to us in all of Scripture. And yet Paul says this when he wrote to them. Listen carefully to the words it's from chapter 6. He says in verse 9, And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, yes, it says that, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Can He change your life? Oh, you bet He can. Folks, this is where your identity begins as a believer. It is in Christ. Understand those two words. In Christ. That's the difference He's made in all of our lives. We are different today because of Jesus, aren't we? It's what He has done in us. And here's those simple words that you're going to see so often. In Him, in Him, in Him. In one of my first Bibles I used when I was preaching from, it lasted about 15 years and then it just blew up one day. And uh, the binding was shot. But uh, I underlined in Him all the way through chapter number one. I just went, in Him, in Him. You know what? The pages looked like some kid got a hold of a pencil and started in on your text. Because it's in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, through Him, in Him, by Him, in Him, in Him. It's like, wow, that was so profound to me. But what it came out to say is, you've been selected by the Father. You have been saved by the Son. You have been sealed by the Spirit. Your identity is in Christ. Do not let the enemy steal it. Do not let him use some identity fraud in your case. (laughs) Don't let who you are in Christ be slandered. This is a terrific study, folks. It's a necessary one for us. Uh, We're going to go through it week by week. We're going to look at this passage over and over. So I'm going to ask you again, sometime this week, read that passage again. Maybe this time go and underline your in hymns so you can see it yourself. I'm going to ask you to do that every single week as we finish up this study. And I'm convinced that he indeed has blessed us. I'm not waiting for his blessing. He's already given. That's what the text says. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I think what we need to know is the truth of that. And I think we need to live like it. Live up to our identity in Christ. So let's learn it, okay? That's our goal. So, Heavenly Father, you know every single heart in this room, and even those who are listening to us on our uh, Zoom broadcast as well. 
Lord, how desperately we need to come to understand who we are in Christ Jesus. There is a, a call in this world. There is a strategy of our enemy to defeat us in our understanding of the truth and to minimize the things of our God and to suggest that they were not good enough in changing our lives. And Lord, there are some who struggle with some pretty deep things. But our God is greater than all that. And as we study together, I pray, Lord, that you just keep enforcing and revealing to us how great you are. Your grace is so wonderful. Your mercy is unending. Your love for us is so very deep. We're awestruck by it. But Lord, I pray especially, aim your word at the heart of those who are in great need and show them things that they need to see and tell them things they need to hear so that they can realize the depth of the forgiveness that they have in Christ Jesus too. Lord, do your work in our midst, we pray. This is going to be a good study for all of us. And I pray, Lord, it brings you honor and glory the way we not only learn from it, but what we do with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.